0: Alright. Well, hey, good morning, Gospel Hope. So I can tell you, one of the most anxious moments in any pastor's life, it's not preaching, it's not Easter, it's not Mother's Day, it's not Launch Sunday, it's not Sin Sunday, it's not any of those, it's Daylight Saving Sunday. Um, because you're always wondering who got the memo, right? And who did not. You're also realize that as church you are the first line of defense or the first test case. For whether or not people are ready to lose that hour of sleep, right? Because the church gets it first, and then you guys have all day, you know, today to adjust to get ready for work tomorrow, right? So daylight saving Sunday uh, is a biggie uh, for church. But uh, nevertheless, glad to see your faces, and glad to hear and see that all of you uh, got the memo that the time is changing and that your body's adjusted. But it's bittersweet, right? We get to enjoy more daylight uh, and less darkness, and that means that the, all the spring uh, flowers and that. Kind Kind of stuff are well on their way. But we have a much broader conversation to have this morning, don't we, and it's not troubles of Daylight Saving Sunday. We want to talk about prayer. Lord, teach us to pray is our series that we're currently in. And so we are going to continue plowing forward in that. We started two Sundays ago uh, talking about, uh, talking through Luke chapter 11, and we looked at uh, this model prayer that the Lord Jesus gave his disciples. And so we're going to continue our discussion this morning uh, from verses 5 to through 13. And we're actually going to read that together as a family after I get done praying. But let me pray for us first, shall we? Um, Father God, we come before you this morning. We thank you and we praise you for the privilege and the awesome wonder of prayer. We thank you, Lord God, that um, in all that you Could do. You could have sat silently in heaven with your arms folded, but you chose, Lord God, to initiate conversation with your people. According to the testimony of your own word, we were not running toward you, but Lord God, you had to chase us down because our hearts, Lord God, were far from you and we wanted nothing to do with you. This was the corrosive effect of sin in all of our lives. But we thank you, Lord God, that by your grace, not only did you reach down, come to us and pull us close, but for those who place faith in you, you gave us your Holy Spirit who intercedes for us because we don't know how to pray as we ought to. So you've not only taught us how to pray in your word through the model of your son, Jesus Christ, but then you gave us your own self and the Holy Spirit to pray through us and with us and to intercede for us. Lord God, you've covered all the bases. You knew that some of us, Lord God, wouldn't know the right words to say, but you covered those bases through your Holy Spirit. You knew, Lord God, that some of us wouldn't know the right issues to pray about, but you covered that base through your Holy Spirit. Some of us wouldn't even know the first words to utter to you in prayer because we had never grown up in a household with prayer, so you gave us and preserved your word and your Bible, and Lord God, so that we could at least read that and pray scriptures. Lord God, you've covered all the bases, and so we thank you. This morning, O holy God, we ask that you would raise up in our hearts a fresh and accurate doctrine of prayer, and that you would point out our sin in this area, that you would indeed, by the power of your word, reprove us, search us, and show us what we have been uh, sinful in this area, whether it be through apathy or whether it be through um, Lord God just pretending to pray but not really being faithful. Lord God, whatever our sin is in the area of prayer, show us that individual thing that's going on in our heart that we need to repent of. Lord God, if we are a kind of person that knows all the right information about prayer but for lack of consistency and maturity, we've, uh, we need some correction, help us to get back on the right path. And Lord God, once we make it through all of the, the correction and reproof, would you give us clear instruction? Show us the way, the roadmap, the right way to pray, Lord God, so that we would, might not only be able to have more forthright conversations with you, Lord God, that, that you hear and respond to, but that we might also be able to pray for others, both the lost and those sitting right next to us. Um, this is our prayer in the matchless and holy name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 So uh, let me ask you a question. Um, uh, how many people in the room would consider themselves to be persistent? You would consider yourselves to be persistent. How many? How many? All right, Marv, got your hand up. All right, see some hands. Persistent. Put those hands back up. Persistent, persistent, persistent. What, what makes you think you're persistent, Brother Day? Okay, good. You, you'll, you'll try again regardless of opposition. I saw a couple other hands over here. Uh, if, you th- if you put your hand up, you said you were consistent. Well, what, makes you th- what makes you say you're consistent? Okay, good. You get fixated on the problem. You don't deviate regardless of opposition. You just boom, boom, boom. just kind of laser focus there, right? Is that accurate? Not on, not on everything, but on, on that thing, right? Laser focus, yeah. Love it. What's that? Persistent. I don't quit. I'm not a quitter. So that goes hand in hand. Yeah, persistent. Good, good. Well, hey, I want to read some words to you. Uh, Wesley, did you have your hand up? You wanted to say something? No. I just thought you, oh, no, you were just twirling your pen. Okay, like to see things completed? Good, so, so we got a couple of, so we got some folks in the room to consider themselves to be persistent. I appreciate you kind of volunteering that, and knowing that you might get pulled into the message some kind of way, uh, and you didn't pull back. But if you got your Bibles with you, I want to read together. If you got your Bibles with you, um, turn with me in them to the book of Luke, uh, chapter 11 in particular, and we're going to read from verses 5 through 13 together, 5 through 13. All right? So uh, say amen once you turn there, get there, switch there, or you can see there. Amen. Amen. All right, we're there. All right, good. So the Bible reads this way, Luke chapter 11, begin with verse 5. It says, he also said to them, suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, friend, lend me three loaves of bread because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I don't have anything to offer him. Then he will answer from inside and say, don't bother me, the door is already locked, my children and I have gone to bed, I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he won't get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs." So I say to you, keep asking and it will be given to you. Keep searching and you will find. Keep knocking and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who searches finds, and the one who knocks the door will be opened. What father among you, if his son ask him for a fish, will give him a snake instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, or natural fathers evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And so let me ask you a question. This is a little bit of uh, participatory. We're going to preach uh, somewhat buffet style. You know what that means? Buffet style. So it's not potluck. I didn't ask you to prepare anything. It's buffet. I'm doing all the cooking, right? It's all laid out, plates, cutlery, and the meats and stuff like that. But some of it you're going to have to come and get, right? You good with that? All right, good. So, uh, uh, so, so when we read this passage together, if it's up on the screen there for you, if you got it there in your, in your, in your handhelds or in your Bibles, when we look at this particular passage What is the point that Jesus is making? There's a a lot of different things that we can infer or take from this, but but apart from all the deep super stuff, what is the one thing that Jesus seems to be trying to drive home through these two stories, one of a friend and one of a father? What is he driving home? God is generous. Keep, Keep working. Asking you shall receive. Keep working. Keep working. Working that out. What, what, is, what is he, what's the thing, what's the thing? What, what's, what's the thing that Jesus says, regardless of who you are in the story, whether you're talking to your natural father asking for an egg, or whether or not you're a friend knocking on someone's door, there's one thing that he says that these two people need to have in common, lift up high, and they need to remember, and what is that one thing? Persistence, yes, persistence. Today, we're going to be talking about persistence. Now, we opened earlier by asking who in the audience thought that they were persistent. So let me ask you this question. What are some of the typical pictures of persistence that you get? Here's a few images that pop into my mind when I think about persistence. I think about that toddler in the store with their parent that sees a toy or some piece of candy that they must have, and they're constantly holding onto the pant leg or bringing the toy along with them and saying, please give me this, please, 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 I want this, will you please give me that? I think about that's one picture of persistence. Another picture of persistence is the telemarketer who manages to have all my phone numbers despite the fact that I'm on every do not call list in the nation right, who will call my house repeatedly at strategic times, like they found out I went full-time ministry, so they knew that I was at home at like 8.15, right? They found out when I was sitting at my desk before I went full-time ministry, and the same guy, they found out when we eat family dinner. And this guy's persistent, and he calls my house wanting to know if I want to donate $1,000 to the sheriff's fund, right? And if I say no, he says, well, what about five hundred? And if I say no to that, he says, what if I just send you uh, an address envelope that's prepaid postage, and you just put in there whatever you like? And I'm like, no, I don't want to be rude to you, man. I'm getting ready to hang up the phone, right? Has anybody gotten this call, right? Has anybody ever seen this child, right? So these are some of the typical images of persistence that we see in our culture. Or if you've ever uh, gone into BJ's or Walmart or maybe uh, Sam's Club, and there's that person at the kiosk, right? Hey, who's your current um, uh, uh, cable service? Who you got? Who you got? I got the same one you're trying to sell. Oh, really? How many channels you got? Really? (laughs) I got 300 channels. How much are you paying for them? I mean, persistence. These people are persistent. You got to love it, right? And so we have a lot of typical images and ideas of persistence all over our lives. But I got to be honest with you, the biblical portrait of persistence is a little bit different. There's quite a contrast in what Jesus is calling us to. Because when we persist in prayer, which is Jesus is calling us to through these two stories, he's not asking us like a toddler to nag God with our favorite toy until he wears down. He's not asking us to go to God like a great commission-based salesperson and constantly try to negotiate up or down until he acquiesces to our will and finally submits because he's tired of saying no. This isn't the portrait of persistence that the Bible is giving us. And so today, I'm going to give you four pictures of biblical persistence, or at least I'm going to give you four impacts that persistence should have on our prayer life and what they should also do to us in the process. And so as we're kind of unpacking this, it is my contention, my conviction from the scripture that prayer is both a demonstration of faith and a development of new faith every time we do it. Every time we pray, we are demonstrating faith. We are saying, I know that there is a God, and I believe that he hears me. You have to demonstrate faith in order to even start praying, right? So prayer is both a demonstration of faith, and as we pray through persistence, if we will continue, if we will press in, if we will pray the right way, prayer should also increase our faith, There should be a development of new faith, new levels of trust and confidence in who God is and what he wants to do in our lives. And how does that happen? Persistence is crucial to that. So when we talk to God, we're demonstrating faith. But when he answers back, wow, does that develop new faith. And so Jesus challenges us to persist in our prayer life. To persist. And so we're going to explore exactly what that means as we walk through um, today's passage. So, if you got your Bibles, which I know you do, and if you don't, um, you'll have a Bible provided for you on the screen. So, when we talk about prayer being both a demonstration of faith and a development of new faith, exactly how or what do we see in Scripture that lets us know that new faith is indeed being developed? I want you to consider a couple of verses by way of comparison. They'll be on the screen for you at the same time. But you and I read the story together, and we're going to work together through this. Now, look at verses 5 and 11 at the same time, if you can. I believe you have those. Perfect. Thank you, sound team, uh, uh, visual team. All right, so let's look at these. It says, He also said to them, Suppose that one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread. And then I want you to skip down to verse 11 and look at the other part or the beginning of this other story that Jesus tells around the same topic. And Jesus says, Now, What father among you, if his son asks for fish, will give him a snake instead of a fish? So I want you to notice that one of the first things that Jesus teaches us in this whole conversation, right? There's two stories, one about a friend going to another one in the middle of the night, and then another story about a son who could ask his father for a piece of bread or, or a fish or an egg. In the two stories, there is this interesting transition between friendship and fathership. One of the first things that persistence does is it matures us to see God as a, not as a friend who lends, but as a father who freely gives. The whole idea around persistence is to help us make the same migration in the story that that Jesus is making. He starts out showing us that, 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 that you may begin prayer as going to a friend in the middle of the night asking to lend or borrow bread. But at the end of the story, Jesus says, no, you ought to see God more like a father who freely gives exactly what the child needs. Let's just be honest. Yes, the Bible says that God is our Father. But how many of us will be honest that in our prayer lives, we often feel more like an imposition. We feel more like it's a gamble. We feel more like we're rolling the dice and we're going to ask God something and we don't know what we're going to get in return or if we're going to get an answer at all. In other words, while our theology and our brains know to call God a Father, the way that we knock on the door in prayer, most oftentimes we're approaching him like a friend in the middle of the night. It takes growth and persistence to truly know God as a father, even if we understand that he is. It doesn't always trickle down into the heart. I mean, yes, we can learn as children to pray a prayer that we've been taught to potentially memorize by our parents or even that we just saw on a pamphlet and we read the Bible and we say to ourselves, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We can do all those things. We know the right vocabulary, but how many of us will admit, right alongside, my hand is up first. I will admit that there are times when I really don't feel like I'm talking to a father. I feel like I'm negotiating with a buddy. Who I know at times in my life has been good for let me borrow a thousand or two, or five hundred, right? I mean, just, I, I, I've got friends like that in my social circle. I've been blessed to have a few people that I, that have just been really close friends, and I know the threshold of our relationship. I have people who I know I could pick up the phone and without any reservation say, "Look, I don't have time to explain, but I need you to Western Union me X, and we'll talk about it later, and we'll laugh about it later." And vice versa, there's some people that know that they can call me. No questions asked, this is what we need. But then I also know that some of the, I know the threshold, and I know the ceiling on all those relationships. But I also know that there are some times that I have a great need in my life, and it's like, I can't go to my boys, I need to go to my, my dad. I can't go to my dad, I got to go to my God. All of our relationships have thresholds. And so we live life like that, categorizing our relationships on where we know we can have the greatest confidence that we're going to be able to get exactly what we need. And if you believe that that kind of thresholding or contextualization of our relationships isn't affecting how we appeal to God, it does. It absolutely does. And it's based on our track record in prayer. Man, if I've prayed and felt like this thing worked, I'll go back to God over and over again. But if I prayed and felt like that was too much of a delay and I had to take things in my own hand, I'll go back to myself over and over again. And so it is only through persistence that our heart matures from seeing God as just a friend who will occasionally lend, if he has it and it's convenient, to a father who actually freely gives. The Bible speaks to this in James chapter 1 verse 16. It preaches to this potential deception of our heart. Look at this in James chapter 1 verse 16. Don't be deceived. Okay, if the Bible leads with the words, don't be deceived, this means that this is a common area of deception, right? So not me, it's the Bible saying, don't be deceived, my dearly beloved brothers, family language. Every generous act and every perfect gift is from above, Coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. By his own choice, he gave us new birth by the message of truth so that we would be the first fruits of his creatures. Listen to James' words carefully. Beloved brothers, do not be deceived. Every good and perfect gift, the gifts and the things that you are generously given in this life, which actually translate to your optimal and your highest well-being, they are coming from God. Who is your father? Don't be deceived. He is your father. But guess what? He is not your father by your own terms. He is your father because you believe the word of truth that he sent And so the nature of our birth to become the children of God is not on our own terms, but it is on his terms. How many people have ever been afraid to go ask your natural parents for something? Or you were tentative because you knew that the giving was going to come with certain advice and accountability. These same tendencies exist within our own heart toward God. There are times when we would much rather find a solution other than having to pray about it because we know that if our Heavenly Father gives it, it's going to come with some heavenly accountability and some heavenly advice. And so persistence matures us from seeing God as a friend who merely lends to seeing God as the Father who truly gives. Persistence invites us to move beyond the deception of our natural hearts, our native state, to see who God is and how he is. James chapter 1, verses 16 through 18 is not only a classic passage in terms of telling us that every good and perfect gift coming down from him, but it is the locus classicus. It is the best text that we go to in Scripture, in the New Testament, to talk about the unchangeable nature of God, his immutability. Now, that should be comforting, which means that God always, toward his children, is a good father not like some of the fathers that you and I may have. I like my dad. I love my dad. All of us have fathers. And so regardless of how you feel about your father, God is a better father. Because there are times when even our earthly fathers with their best intentions may not be able to, their best may not even be, it close to the Lord's best. Does that make sense? I'm not insulting anybody's dad's what I'm saying to you is that there are times in our lives where we need to recognize that God's best will always exceed the best of others around us who have our best interests at heart. So we should have no fear. And He is unchanging in that regard. This is the nature and quality of your Heavenly Father. He wants us to trust Him as always having the best interest our highest good, and that never changes. He is not a father who is getting annoyed with how often we need to talk about the same sin. He is not the kind of father that winces to see us coming up the driveway because, oh boy, they don't know what issue we're bringing this time. This is not the nature of your heavenly father. He is unchanging, and that should reassure our hearts that he is not the friend with whom we can wear out our welcome. Or the friend who's going to say, me and my kids are already in the bed, man. Come on. I can't believe you're out here this time of night. You're going to wake my wife. I already got in trouble with you previously. Right? That's not the nature of our God. He's not the friend who lends. But he is the Father who freely gives, and he wants us to know that about him. And But guess how we come to know that? Not through the theory of my message not through the theology of Scripture. We come to see it in the theology of Scripture, but we come to know it through persistence in prayer. And so I want you to also appreciate this beautiful picture that Jesus gives us, the guy who's outside knocking on the door, imposing on the friend in the middle of the night, and he really doesn't want to get up to come to the door. And I want you to see that next picture that Jesus gave us of the Father, isn't it interesting that, 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 that I believe that Jesus wants us to see this, that we are not the friend trying to get in, but we are the child who already lives in God's loving, adoring, attention, affection, provision, and protection. You understand? We're not the ones outside banging on the door. We're the ones inside with the Father. That's who we are. Psalm 121 tells us this, that God has always had this in mind in his relationship with us. While the language of fatherhood is not used in this text, listen at what language is. In Psalm 121, David says these words, I will lift mine eyes toward the mountains. And some of your Bibles may say, I lift mine eyes toward the hills. Where does my help come from? Question mark. Not from the hills. My help comes from the Lord, who is the maker of heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to slip. He is your protector who will not slumber. Indeed, your protector of Israel, he does not slumber, nor does he sleep. You're not going to wake God up with your needs. He doesn't sleep. The Lord will protect you. The Lord is the shelter by your right side. You're not trying to get in. You're in. If you're in him, you're already in his shelter. Are you seeing this? The sun will not smart you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will protect you from all harm. He will protect your life. The Lord will protect your coming out and your going in both now and forevermore. The Lord desires that we live in his affection, provision, and protection, and that we know him as the father with whom we already reside, not the friend who we're trying to knock on his door in the middle of the night in land. You should never feel as if you are inconveniencing God regardless of how repeatedly it is the same or similar type of need. And regardless of the time, type of need, or the moment in which it's need, none of your crises represent an inconvenience for the father. Not a single one of them. Let's look at the next verse. What else can we learn from persistence, if we persist the way that Jesus is teaching it. Look at verses 6 in the top story compared with verse 13 in the bottom story. Verse 6 says this, because a friend of mine, this is why the guy's knocking in the middle of the night, right? Because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I don't have anything to offer him. But then scroll down to verse 13, what does that conversation look like? Not with a friend, but with a father, Verse 13, if then you who are evil, you who are natural, regular, everyday fathers, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more does your heavenly Father know how to give you, follow this, it may seem weird and awkward, but I want you to follow very carefully, how much more does your heavenly Father know how to give you, give the Holy Spirit to those who ask, give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. Who is the Holy Spirit? Who is the Holy Spirit? This is buffet style. Who is the Holy Spirit? It's God. It's God, the Holy Spirit. How much more? In other words, if your earthly father knows how to give you bread rather than a scorpion, he won't give you anything deleterious, he won't give you a snake, right? He won't give you something that's going to hurt you or destroy you. How much more, I'll spell it later. uh, How, how much more? How much more would he give you not just something, but give you himself? And so, 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 so here's, here it is. The second thing that persistence teaches us is this. Persistence moves us from focusing on our immediate need to our ultimate need. It's not that God is asking us to ignore our immediate needs. They are actually a segue to our ultimate need. The Bible puts it this way. 2 Samuel chapter 22, verses 2 and 3. Listen to these words. And he said, The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer, my God, my mountain, where I seek refuge, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, my refuge, my Savior. You save me from violence. Follow the thought life of the prayer and then think about your own life. How often does one of our immediate needs take us before God and it's like, Lord, we need safety. And that's true and it's real, and we ought to say it to God just that way. Lord, I need safety. But what happens through persistence is our prayer life evolves to where we're not only asking for God to distribute safety into our lives, we say, Oh, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run in it, and they are safe. You understand what I'm saying? Persistence in prayer moves us from an exclusive focus on the immediate need for bread to the one who is living bread. From the immediate need for refuge to the one who wants to be our refuge. All of our needs have this same DNA. How can they lead me to the ultimate one? Not to to ignore the fact David really did need protection. We really do need protection. We really do need bill payment help. We really do need assistance with pass-through house notes. We really do need new jobs. We really do need the hearts of evil bosses to be affected. We really do need spouses to turn toward us in love. We really do need disobedient children to finally heed our wisdom. We really do need wisdom for the most challenging situations in our lives, and in all of them, God is saying, bring it to me persistently so that I can not only address that, but show you how I am the one you need, not just the one who distributes what you need. Does this make sense? Amen. Amen. I'm glad it makes sense to you. Um, one of the greatest places in Scripture where we see this is, the Lord is my shepherd, therefore I shall not want. My wants lead me to see the larger and the ultimate thing that I need is the shepherd himself. And this is the beauty of persistence in prayer, is that it constantly chips away any resistance we have in our heart to see God for who he fully wants to be in our lives. James tells an interesting story. James 5.16 Uh, Confess your trespasses one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Immediately after that, if you're familiar with the, the story that James tells, he talks about Elijah who is a man of natural affection just like us and how he prays that it would not rain and it stops raining. And it does not commence to rain again until after he prays again. Now, if you go back and read this story in Scripture, you find something very incredible happening. Through the drought, he meets a widow. And in the meeting of the widow, she doesn't have any food to give, but he asks her for food. And when she agrees, he then, her household gets blessed. And she goes, oh my goodness, I now know that the Lord and his word is true. He then moves on, and, and, and there's a standoff between the prophets of Baal and the prophet of God. And during a drought, God comes in and completely laps up and takes this sacrifice that the other gods could not do. They couldn't match what was happening there. And as a result, people's hearts are won back to know through the drought who God is. So the immediate need for water, the immediate need, because what what often caused God's people to drift? What often caused God's people to drift is that they didn't feel like the covenant God was meeting their need in the way that they wanted it met. And so they would drift in their hearts to something else. You and I may not be drifting off to other gods, but we may be drifting to ourselves or just drifting over toward apathy and prayer. And so drought, need in our lives, if we will take them to him, will lead us to a more full appreciation of God. But here's what I really believe. Here's what I, I really believe. Everything I just said is true. But I also want to point this out. The Lord wants the urgency of our need to translate to a fervence for him. And that takes time. Let's just be honest. My felt need creates real personal urgency. I go to God crying out for him to address the thing that is front and center. And you and I are not alone. David did it. Right? Right? Right, David, David. Every everybody in the Bible who we see crying out before God earnestly, they cried out to him earnestly through the lens of their immediate need. And through that time, the Lord began to transform or do something to their prayers. Especially if you watch David, he transitions from the from the from the agony and the turmoil, the potential and the prospect of defeat to the declaration that God is indeed his deliverer and the faithful one who will always come through. These are the same kinds of prayers that the Lord wants us to pray. He wants our hearts to he wants the urgency of the situation to translate to a fervence for him as a person. And guess what? It is only through the vehicle of persistence in prayer that that transformation by the Holy Spirit takes place. If you pray without if you're praying sporadically, it won't happen. It just seems like God hasn't checked his mail yet. But if you're praying persistently, if you're communing with him often, you begin to discover that, God, you are listening, and oh, my goodness, you are transforming my perspective through this one issue. And you don't, you don't start praying for issues, but you start seeing issues in your life, and you'll be like, oh, we, oui, how is God going to show up in this? I don't know if you've got there yet, but, but, but it's, a, it's a tender space. I, I'll tell you what else happens. When there are no issues on the horizon of your life that drive you to your knees, you get a little bit anxious. And you say, well, wait a minute. Am I not on the front lines? Am I not being faithful? Lord, are you not interested in showing yourself in my life? You begin to associate God blowing through challenges with how he shows himself in your life. And so in the absence of challenge, you begin to wonder, man, God, do you still want to work through me? Well, this is what's happening in my life. I don't want to put that on you if that's not where you're at. But I will say this. Based on what I see in the biblical record, the only, person, the only way that a person can rejoice, right, amid all manner of temptation, the only way that a person can rejoice in being shipwrecked, the only way that a person can rejoice in, in, in any measure of difficulty in their life, that that difficulty is going to somehow make them more identifiable with the cross of Christ. The only way that you could possibly rejoice is that through the persistence of prayer, you have finally seen God constantly come through your challenges, and you almost grow to relish challenges. Not the pain thereof, but the outcome of them. And so, the Lord wants the urgency of our need to translate to a fervency for him. Let's look at verses 7 and 8 together. They're next door neighbors. This is pretty easy. Then he will answer from inside. talking about the friend. We're knocking on the door. Then he will answer from inside and say, do not bother me. The door is locked. My kid's in the bed. I cannot get up to give you anything. I tell you even though he won't get up and give you anything because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. Now, the biblical portrait of persistence, not the toddler, not the telemarketer, not the salesperson in in Walmart or BJ's. Now, this is a very interesting exegetical discovery, but the Greek word, which I won't try to I won't pronounce it for you because it's not relevant. Behind persistence actually means shameless. Shameless. Now, why is this relevant to the story? So, hospitality is a major centerpiece in ancient Near Eastern culture. You can kind of just think back in your mind if you read through the Bible, what were one of the first or the foremost acts of hospitality that were often extended to travelers that come into someone's home? Right? A piece of bread, somewhere to lay your head, and maybe some place to wash your feet. These were general acts of hospitality. So, you know, the ancient Eastern countryside is not littered with hotels like ours is. And so, hospitality, before it became an industry, was the priority of individual citizens. As a matter of fact, Jesus even said, uh, how do you know if you want to mind? Do you show hospitality to people? You remember how the Apostle Paul told people to validate whether or not a widow should be included in daily administration? Does she have a history of faithfulness, and how does she treat strangers when they come? Does she show them hospitality, right? So this whole idea of hospitality, what's happening in this, this moment that Jesus is showing us is that this guy is shameless. In other words, he doesn't care who hears him knocking But he also knows that it would be a shame for others to hear him at the door, constantly petitioning for help, and no one would show him hospitality by opening the door. He is shameless. He does not care who hears. He's shameless because he's there in the middle of the night. And so we are called, our persistence, the nature of persistence, not the toddler, not the telemarketer, but the kind of persistence that we should have toward God is the kind of persistence that says, Lord, I don't care who's looking. Lord, I don't care who hears. I don't care who knows that I'm trusting you like this. I don't care who knows that I have set aside all other options and made you the primary option. You see, persistence makes us take delays in answer as time to deepen my resolve. Delays in answer prayer are time for me to deepen my resolve that God is exactly who and what I need. Let me give you some examples. In Daniel chapter 3, verses 16 through 18, you won't have this on the screen, but you know the story. It's the story of the three Hebrew boys. The three Hebrew boys' story doesn't give us any insight into their prayer lives, but it does give us this conversation between Nebuchadnezzar and the three Hebrew boys. When they were faulted or charged with not bowing down before this idol god, and Nebuchadnezzar came to them, blew the trumpet and said, now you must bow. He says, "Let, let me tell you something. We will not bow down whether our God chooses to deliver us from your hand or not, regardless of the outcome, we shamelessly trust our God. And God did not delay, listen to me, God did not delay the answer, but it definitely seemed from, like a, from, a, from, a, from a human standpoint, they were in the furnace before the Father sent a saving solution. So from a human perspective, it seemed like, oh, God, I wish you would kick in. But these guys were shameless in their commitment to God. What else did they do? Who else in the Scriptures has persevered in this way? The Apostle Paul, over in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, asked the Lord three times to remove from him, to remove an issue from his life that was painful, Right? And and agonizing. And the Apostle Paul shares with us that even after making these three requests, the Lord's response is, no, because my grace is sufficient for you. And then Paul says, I then shamelessly glory in my affliction, because this is how the Lord wants to humble me and work through me. The Lord Jesus, on the night preceding his crucifixion, goes to the Father three times and says, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. And on the third, Jesus says shamelessly, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And we know that Jesus can get a prayer through. So not all answered prayer is about God doing it our way. When Jesus stood before the tomb of Lazarus, he says, Lord, I pray so that the people would know that you hear me. I pray out loud so the people would know that you hear me. And God answered the prayer. Lazarus got out the grave. And so we know that Jesus can get a prayer through. We know that Jesus could call for a legion of angels and they would be dispatched. So we know that Jesus knows the right vocabulary, the right right template, the right formula, the right buttons to push. But he shamelessly says, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Persistence helps us to see delays and answers as a time to deepen my resolve. My resolve in what? That God's way is better than my way. Well, I would be totally convinced of these things. God, you are not just my first choice. You're my only option and my last resort. But let's just be honest. There are times when God is only one of those. Well, well I'm a Christian, so God is my first choice. But if he don't come through, if he delays too much, I'll go to my next option. There are times in lives where we say, well, you know, I've tried a couple other things. You know, God probably is the best option. I'm going to go ahead and listen to what the preacher says or what the Bible says. I'm feeling a nudge from the Holy Spirit. I'm going to go ahead and treat God like he's my best option. I'll go. Sometimes that's our point of entry. And there are other times when we've tried everything else. We've been bonked upside the head a million times, and then we finally go to God as our last resort. And so What perseverance, excuse me, what persistence in prayer does is it takes us to a place where, regardless of whether you came in as a last resort, a first choice, or a best option, it says, No, I'm the Alpha and Omega, I'm all three. And it takes a moment for the heart to get there. It doesn't take God a moment to get there, it takes a moment for our hearts to get there because this is how God wants us to know Him. Oftentimes in the Bible, when we see people waiting on God, you know what the wait is for? For all the other options that they might be vested in to expire in their, in their efficacy and significance. There's a handout. Amen. And so, am I totally convinced? Persistence helps me get to this place of being totally convinced that he is my first choice, my only option, and my last resort. Let's go to verses 9 and 10. We're getting close. So I say to you, keep asking, and it will be given to you. Keep searching, and you will find. Keep knocking, and the door will be opened. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who searches finds, and the one who knocks the door will be opened. For what father among you, if his son asked for fish, would give him a snake instead of a fish? Finally this, persistence helps us or motivates us to see prayer more like a treasure hunt than a trivial pursuit. Where am I going? You might be saying to yourself when Jesus says, keep knocking, keep asking. Well, how do I know if I get the right number of knocks? How do I know if I'm asking the right way? How do I know if I'm searching correctly? I feel like, man, prayer is this super-duper thick and complex thing where I, it's like a Rubik's Cube. And, and God says, no, it's not a trivial pursuit. It's not like you got to come up with the perfect and right answers. It is about a work that I am doing in your life. And so the length of time and the delay and all of the stuff that you think is so complex, no, it's not that I can't hear you or that I don't want to answer you. It's we are in a relationship, and this is not just about you putting in in the right coin and making your selection and out drops your prize. We are in a relationship and I want you to be more like my son. And so persistence motivates us to see prayer more like a treasure hunt. God, what are you doing in me? How do you want me to discover you and to find you? What do you want me to learn about you through this? Prayer is a beautiful adventure, not a trivial pursuit where we're just trying to guess the right answers at random. But let's just be honest. How many people At times of knocking and asking and petitioning and searching like I have, have found unanswered prayer or at least unanswered in the way that I thought was going to be answered to be disappointing, to raise doubt. Yes, yes, yes. It raises doubt for me too. Unanswered prayer or prayer that doesn't get answered like I thought it would sometimes raises doubt as to whether or not it actually works. But there's something else that God wants to do, and it's not raise doubt. Two thousand. 2002, 2003, I think, was the first year that DVD sales outpaced VHS. The reason I noticed is because one of my clients actually duplicated both. And I was at their facility back at those dates that I just described. And uh, one of the sweetest times in the warehouse, this is a 1.5 million square foot warehouse. you guys have perspective on how big that is? Um, Trader Joe's is probably 50,000 square feet. All right? Um, a decent sized, I don't know, Piggly Wiggly. That's 50,000 square feet, if you've ever been in one. Right? Your basic liquor store. Um, maybe, I don't know. <laughs> I gotcha. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> but you get it. 1.5 million square feet is big, right? I mean, your homes, I mean, what, the average home? Let's just, you know what a 1,500 square foot house looks like? All right, 1.5 million square feet. That's a massive amount of space, right? So, and inside of that, can you imagine the total number of DVD and VHS volumes that would be included in this place? Yeah, so one of the things that, uh, uh, that they would do is they would shut down all incoming shipments and they would shut down all outgoing shipments to inventory, the facility. And when they would do the physical inventory, they would bring in a team and they would run around and they would count every single DVD and VHS title on the shelves. And it was crazy to watch this go down. But do you know what happened when they did that? Number one, the first thing that happened is that they would discover movie titles that they thought they had lost. Number two, they would recover or they would discover movie titles that they didn't know they had. They would recover movie titles that had previously been lost. And the reality of what they thought they had on the books would become excuse me, the theory of what they thought they had on the books in their systems would become the reality. They physically counted it. Now, as I stood back and watched all this activity go down, there's no way that I could recant for you all the individual episodes of all the movies that were featured in that place. And this reminds me much of Isaiah chapter 55. In Isaiah chapter 55, verse 8, we're going somewhere with this. The Lord says, My thoughts are not your thoughts and my ways are not your ways. And the Lord's, this is the Lord's declaration, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, and my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts above your thoughts. Many times when prayers are not answered, I would hear this verse as a holy stiff arm. You stay in your lane. I'm up here. You're down there. You don't think like I do. You don't work like I do. But then I read 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16, and it wasn't a stiff arm because the Bible says, for who has known the mind of the Lord that they might instruct him? But, contrast, we have the mind of Christ. So there is an invite to know the mind of God, but not that we would be superior to him and tell him what to do. The invite is to explore his mind one episode at a time. And so when we pray, we are invited to inventory the heart and mind of God, this little infinitesimally small need that I have, and I can't possibly fathom all that God has in store in his omniscient warehouse of thoughts and ways. But what I can know is that I can discover individual titles that I didn't even know were there. Oh, my goodness, Lord, I had only seen the trailer for this, but now I know you to be that. Lord, I had heard about the reality of how you redeem, but now I know that as part of my personal experience. Oh, my goodness, I had never seen you show up this way in my life. But look at this episode. Every one of our prayers, every one of our needs is a fresh episode where God is inviting us to hunt hunt. for treasure to find out just how he is and who he is toward that particular need. It's a treasure hunt. It's not a trivial pursuit. It is through prayer, verses 11 through 13, for if your evil fathers, your earthly fathers, know how to give you good gifts, how much more does God know how to give good gifts to his children? And he would give even the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. God wants to answer prayer, to prove to the world that he is a perfect father through the lives of his children. Have you ever been around a friend who you felt like, man, their parents, like you never met their parents, but you know their parents were spoiling them? You you, you met some people, you looked at them, and you're like, wow, I mean, I know that that's not coming from their strip. They jobless. They are broke student, just like I am. How are they rolling in life like this? And it does what? It raises our curiosity and appreciation, sometimes hateration, for their parents you and I are walking advertisements for the perfect goodness of our father he wants to answer prayer so that people would see your life and get curious brag on and want to be officially introduced to your God come by your house and do dinner every once in a while God wants to answer prayer you are his bragging right we are his bragging right you are his children he wants people to see the evidence of us having had a conversation with him, and wow, look at the outcome. And so I would beg you in this, don't forbear sharing when God answers prayer in your life. Don't, don't shave your testimony down and tell folks you got lucky or this thing finally came through that you had really been hoping and pushing for. Let people know that your perfect heavenly Father have answered your prayer and recognizing that some of the needs that we have that led us to need to know God in this ultimate way are painful things. And so they don't make us look like celebrities. And that's by design so that God is the celebrity in answer prayer. That people would see your good works and glorify not you as being morally sound and gifted, but glorify your Father which is in heaven. So why would I need to believe in Jesus in all of this? Well, Hebrews puts it best when it says in, in chapter 1, God, who at various times and in diverse manners spoke to the fathers through the prophets, but he has spoken to us in these last days through his Son, who is the brightness of his glory, the exact image of his person whom he has given a name. That's even above that of the angels. God has been talking throughout history and wants to talk to humanity. He wants to talk to human beings. And it says that today he is talking through his son. The gospel is God's declaration that I want to have a conversation with you. And I want to have that conversation through my son. I I, I want you to enjoy the beautiful benefit of what it means to have you as your father in much the same way that Jesus does. The reason that Jesus came and died for us on the cross was, yes, because sin needed to be dealt with personally and powerfully, but also we needed a pattern of what relationship with the Father looked like. And Jesus beautifully and wonderfully provided that, and God allowed the words of it to be captured in Scripture for our own enduring and eternal edification. The gospel is God's banner his shout, it's his inflatable thing out on the lawn that says, I want to talk to you. I want to have a conversation. I want to connect. I want to relate. And here's how I communicate. I communicate through my son, Jesus Christ. And I, won't want to, I don't want to communicate with you as a friend who has an urgent need in the middle of the night. I want to communicate with you as a child and as a father who gives and gives the best. This is how God wants to communicate. He wants to invite us into a special relationship, but it is a unique one that demands we move toward him with faith and that we come to him on his terms. Can you imagine the friend who might be so enamored by how your family or your father has taken care of you and wants to be invited to your house for dinner? And they come, and while there, they say, you know what? I think I love this so much, I'm just going to go upstairs and take my shoes off and lay down in the bed. How well would that go over without a relationship, right? I mean, they might be to lay down in the bed for like a couple of hours, but to just say, I officially live here, that's not how relationships work with God works. We don't just get to roll up on God and say, I'm going to now connect and relate and dwell in your presence forever on my terms. It has to be on his terms. What would have to happen for that friend to dwell in that place with you? They would have to be adopted. They would have to be adopted. And so the gospel call is God saying, I want you at my house. I want you at my table. I want you as my son. But here's what that means. And so the gospel calls us into a more meaningful and persistent relationship in prayer. Persistence is designed to do what? I think you see it there on the screen. Persistence matures us from seeing God as a friend who lends, but yet as a father who gives. Persistence moves us from focusing on just our immediate need to our ultimate need for God himself. Persistence makes us take the delays and answers to deepen our resolve in who God is and that he's all I need. Persistence motivates us to see prayer as more of a treasured hunt for God than a trivial pursuit for just the thing that I came to him for. I want to give you a couple of ways that you can get involved in prayer more persistently. Um, As a church, you know, we have been, again, striking the chord, beating the drum, talking about it um, incessantly because we want to be a church that is marked by a lifestyle of constant prayer. And so on Monday nights at 7 p.m., on Monday, we've got our prayer call coming up. We want to invite you um, to participate in that. And then this coming Easter, in preparation for Easter, we have prayer cards that are going to be distributed. You'll see more details about these later, but we have these prayer cards coming up um, where we are asking you to indicate four names of people that you're going to be praying for for the next four weeks. We want you to persist to pray for these people, that they would come and join you in your father's house, that they would come and join you at your father's table, that they would come and join you as one of your father's children. Can you pray like that? Now, there are some names that you've already kind of been, you know, working with. Remember from our Who's Your One campaign? We left the board out for weeks. There are many names that you've already written up there. So feel free to take those very names and continue to pray for those people. But if you only put one, let's add three more. But so you'll see these prayer cards coming out. We want to create a context and an opportunity for you to persist. And we want you to join us again on our prayer call. Again, Monday nights at 7. These are your opportunities to at least... Apply today's message congregationally. I would ask you individually and personally, don't give up. Even if it doesn't seem like God is answering, persist. Because the Lord would never give you anything that is dangerous for you or not good for you. Or as Ari likes to say it, it would develop you. It would not be deleterious to you. So the Lord is, um, the Lord wants to hear from you. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you and we praise you. We believe what your word says, and we ask that this word would find its home in our hearts. And Lord, it would would bump up against all the areas where we need to make the appropriate adjustment in our prayer lives. Lord, forgive us if we made prayer complicated and technical. But just like a crying baby, Lord God, you hear us and you pick us up if we would just cry out to you. Alert our hearts, oh God, that we don't have to have the perfect liturgy or the perfect vocabulary. Your Holy Spirit takes care of that. But what we do need, Lord God, is to persist. You call us to seek you earnestly and diligently. And so, Lord God, we pray that you would remove the obstacles from our lives through our diligence, we pray, oh God, that you would develop our faith through this particular message to go back again and, and, and to talk to you about this one thing that we've been avoiding or all the things that we've been avoiding and not to just pray easy prayers because we can make our conscience feel great that it got answered or we don't know if it got answered. But Lord God, grow us in our prayer lives that we'll be people who will persist. This is our earnest prayer in the matchless and holy name of your Son, Jesus Christ.